Alright, well why don't you take your Bible and turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28 is where we're going to be this morning. I almost cannot believe it, but this is the last sermon in our series through the book of Matthew. We began this sermon series in December of not 2016, not 2015, but 2014. And so we have been in the book of Matthew for about two and a half years. We've taken a few breaks here and there. Um, and as I thought over, over that amount of time, the span from December 2014 to where we are right now, many of you have come to this church in that span of time. Um, some of you have been married in that span of time. Some of you have been baptized in that span of time. So it's encouraging to me to, as I think of how God has worked in many of your lives during the time span even of this sermon series, I hope that he has used this series in your life to encourage you and to equip you for the work that he has given to you. The book of Matthew has been a true blessing to be in. I believe that I've run these numbers by you before, but there was a poll done by the Barner Group not many years ago, only a few years ago, of the least and the most Bible-minded cities in the United States. And the top five or ten most Bible-minded, in other words, the cities where the people generally read their Bibles the most, on, on a regular or quasi-regular basis, undoubtedly, they were all in the South. They were all... Tennessee, they were in North Carolina, they were all in those kinds of places, Alabama. And as you can imagine, the 10 least Bible-minded cities were all either in New York or New England. Out of the 96 polled cities, Portland, Maine, and they connected Portland with Auburn, Lewiston, Portland, Auburn, Lewiston came in 93rd place for the least Bible-minded city in the United States. In other words, the people of Portland, Maine that were polled read their Bible not at all or less than most every single city that was polled. Portland is less Bible-minded than cities like Madison, Wisconsin. Less Bible-minded than New York City or Washington, D.C. or Seattle, Washington or Las Vegas, Nevada, which we call Sin City. Portland, Maine knows less about the Bible than all of those places. It's reported that over 72% of Mainers affiliate with no religion at all, which translates into Maine having the most agnostic and atheistic percentage per capita in the entire country. So 72% of Mainers don't affiliate with any religion at all. You would assume that on the flip side, okay, well, the 28% of the rest of the people, they all go to some kind of church, right? No. Only about 4.5% of Mainers go to any church. So out of about 1.3 million people that live in this state, only about 75,000 people have attended some sort of church service this weekend. And frankly, that's probably a generous number. But for the sake of illustration, let's say that those 75,000 people are genuinely converted. And again, I believe that's, that's uh, generous. That leaves about 1.2 million people who are going to die and enter into a Christless eternity just from the state of Maine. 1.2 million people. The people that you walk by, the people that you stand in line with, the people that you work with, the people that you play softball with and get a haircut from and buy your groceries from, 
they are all heading to a Christless eternity in hell. And so the question for us this morning is this. As those living in a context where Christianity is on the demise, are we living on mission for Christ? Are we great commission living? Are we living our lives about people? Are we pouring ourselves into other people? Are we sharing the gospel with other people? And if we don't, as those who reside in the state of Maine, if we're not going to tell these Mainers about Jesus, who is going to do it? How, how are they going to hear the truth? I think the realities for, for most all of us is that we wake up every day and this great commission is the furthest thing from our mind. Well, even when we're praying, we don't even really... Think about praying for those we may come in contact to, that we would have boldness to share the gospel with them. Sharing the gospel has become a monumental event in our year instead of the regular practice in our week. But this is hardly how the original disciples lived. You look in the book of Acts and you see the best example possible on how to live with the Great Commission and focus. But before we get ahead of ourselves. Let's think about the context of this Great Commission. Before the Great Commission is given, what do we see? You see the death, you see the burial, you see the resurrection of Jesus. He's dead, but now he's alive. As chapter 28 continues, remember that we saw this stir in the city last week um, where where all of this is going on. The, the, the Roman guards that were knocked out, they went over to the religious rulers of the elder, or, or of the Jews and they said, hey, th- this Jesus is gone. We don't know where he is. And so they concoct this lie to spread throughout all of the city to, te- to say that Jesus' disciples came and stole the body of Jesus, which is obviously completely ridiculous to think about a bunch of ragamuffin fishermen being able to knock out a bunch of Roman soldiers around a tomb. It's totally unthinkable, but that was going to be the story. And so what precedes the Great Commission is the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. But what comes after the Great Commission? The ascension, right? Jesus' ascension into heaven. And so these, these parting words of Jesus are between those two monumental things in Jesus' life. Between his resurrection and between his ascension. And so do you think that it's of utmost importance for us to hear these words and to consider them well this morning as imperative and important from Jesus before his ascension. It certainly is. This is like the climax of it all. I died for you. I rose for you. Now let me tell you about this commission. And and so you can go tell other people too. And then I'm going to ascend and be with the Father. Look down at verse 18 with me. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And so the first thing I want you to see, again on the back of your bulletin is the outline, but the first thing I want you to see is the sovereign authority of Christ. So all authority. Not not some, not a lot, not most, but all authority. Our passage here obviously picks up at the end of the book of Matthew. But we know all of that comes in the previous chapters of the Matthew. Because we've been spending the last two and a half years looking at them. That Jesus had authority. Right? That's what we were tracking. The authority of Christ throughout the entire book of Matthew. And Jesus, uh, we saw him heal people. 
We saw him heal the lame. We saw him heal the blind. He could even look at a sinner and do what only God can do and say, your sins be forgiven of you. He he even had authority over the demons. Remember that he would cast demons out of people. He had authority even over nature where he was in that boat and the seas were rocking and he says, peace be still and all of it quiets down. He did so many things to prove that he had authority, at least measures of authority over certain things like demons and illness and all of the rest. But here he says that I have all authority. So so who has the, the power who has the, the ability to claim such a thing? Yet here Jesus stands on the mountain and he says that all authority everywhere is his. He is the Lord of all. Paul expands on this in Colossians where he says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So if if all things in heaven and on earth, the visible things, the invisible things, they were created by him, by Jesus, and for Jesus, then certainly he has authority over everything. By this authority, Jesus was not just spoken of by Paul after Jesus had already risen from the dead and ascended into heaven. But this authority was prophesied hundreds of years before Christ, even in the book of Daniel. He says, Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and language should serve him. Note that. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So even centuries before and even after the claim was over this authority of Jesus. That his kingdom which would include all peoples, nations and languages. And here on this mountain Christ is sending his apostles to spread his fame. And he's sending them with the knowledge that he is the one who has authority over absolutely everything. But one of the pieces of emphasis that we need to note about the authority of Jesus is that Jesus is not telling his disciples to go into uncharted territory. He's not telling his disciples to go to a place that Christ himself does not control or know. He's telling them to go into his domain, which is the world, and to make disciples. The idea here is of of jurisdiction. You want to know what my jurisdiction is? Heaven and earth. You want to know where I can execute all of my power in unbounded ways? Heaven and earth. I've been to some of your houses and and maybe talk about your property that you own. And you'll say, well, my property line is from here to here. Or I own this many acres. I have a pond over here. And it's this many acres and this and that. And you have the authority to give to give to me to hunt on your land or to fish in your pond or whatever else. And the point is that you know your land. You know your territory. And you can give permission for people to be on it or to stay off of it. You have that authority. And that's somewhat like what Jesus is saying here. The difference is Jesus doesn't just have a few acres. And Jesus doesn't even have a country the size of Israel that he has control of. He has control over the entire globe. He has control over the entire planet and the heavens. The world is under the authority of Jesus. 
He knows where all of the unreached people groups are in the world. He knows everything there is to know about the people that we're even trying to reach in this location. So from his perspective, there is no such thing as an uncharted territory. All of the world is the domain of Jesus. There is no geographical limit on the gospel. As the church, we have been commissioned, we have been mobilized, we've been sent out on this mission with the complete backing of the sovereign authority of Jesus. So when God wants you to be a missionary to China or to Pakistan or to a place where the gospel is forbidden, Jesus can say, go, that territory is mine. And this gives us a great confidence as we go forward with the gospel because we go under the sovereign authority of Jesus. The call to go to the nations and to make disciples would be ridiculous, right? It would be a total waste of time if we did not have the authoritative backing that we need. And so Christ emphasizes first his sovereign authority, all authority, all power in heaven and on earth is mine. And then he gives a sacred command in light of his authority. Go and make disciples. Verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And the first thing I want you to notice under this sacred command is the purpose of the commission, and that is to make disciples. This is the whole key to the Great Commission. The the center of it is to make disciples disciples. We cannot miss this. And to make sure that we're all on the same page, it's important to note that discipleship, to to make a disciple, is not simply to get somebody to repeat a prayer after you. Sharing the gospel and and giving it to people and, and, and people praying and accepting the Lord, that's all certainly part of it. If we're going to make disciples as a nation, we definitely need to know how to share the gospel with unbelievers and they need to repent of their sin. But discipleship goes beyond the sharing of the gospel message. Discipleship goes beyond seeing a person saved to then helping that person and making them a disciple as Jesus called the disciples and he spent several years with them. That is the same kind of a a, a pathway we should take as well in regard to making disciples. Yes, they pray and trust Christ, but then they follow him and, and we say, this is how you follow him. This is how you respond to his word and his truth and all of The rest. Discipleship goes beyond seeing a person saved to seeing that person live a gospel centered, Christ centered life. To be an actual disciple and to help somebody to be a disciple is that that cross is taken on their back and you're telling them and directing them through the Word of God the direction that they go, they should go. And so our purpose is not to get somebody to simply utter a few words after us. I grew up in that kind of a setting where really well-intentioned people would try to get people they meet on the road to to string 25 words together and suddenly they're a Christian. And and if they never saw that person again, then it didn't really matter because at least we got them to repeat some words after us. That is not disciple-making. That's not Great Commission living, even within the context of this. Yes, they receive the gospel, but then we baptize them and then we teach them in order to help them along the process of being a disciple. The Great Commission is about this. Discipleship is a process. Discipleship is a relationship. Discipleship even implies a a teacher-student relationship. And this can take shape in so many ways. And again, you, you might be thinking to yourself, well, 
The Great Commission says to go, and often this is used at, at missions conferences and so forth. So going to China or something, God hasn't called me to do that sort of thing. And maybe you're in that kind of a boat where you're thinking, God hasn't called me to go a thousand miles away like the apostles or like missionaries do. But that doesn't get us off of the hook. We all should be making disciples in whatever context that we find ourselves. We can be sharing the gospel regularly with people and never see many people saved. It's up for God to do that work. But just because people are not necessarily being saved at this moment in your life doesn't take your responsibility away to be making disciples. Our responsibility to discipleship and that process of discipleship never goes away. So you might be unable to devote your life to the disciple-making in the jungles of Africa, but what about the jungle of your home with your children? Parents have the responsibility to be discipling their children by bringing them up in the discipline, the disciple discipline and instruction of the Lord. To teach your children, to read the Bible, have them read it back to you, discuss the Bible, pray the Bible, disciple your children. This is a massive area of importance. Everybody who comes here for the first time usually remarks about how many children are in our church. And that is a a wonderful blessing, but it is a daunting challenge. Friends, you can raise them to be doctors, successful business owners or whatever, but if they are not disciples, they can gain the whole world and lose their own soul. Discipleship should be the norm in the home. You may say that God hasn't called you to another part of the world to make disciples, but God has very obviously placed children in many of your homes in order to disciple them. I've shared it with you before, but I'm burdened for our kids. That there are a lot of them. And if we are not serious about discipling our children now at the young ages that they are, then there will be many regretful tears down the road. Take the responsibility to disciple them now seriously. Make it your priority. Within the context of the church, beyond even the children, there are other areas, practical ways in which we should be discipling one another. You think of what Paul says in Titus chapter 2. Older women are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. And so older, more mature women need to take the opportunity to mentor and love and disciple the younger women. And quite frankly, the younger women need to humbly open themselves and receive that ministry from the older women. Of course, that goes on to men discipling men. It may seem obvious church leaders are disciple to disciple members of the congregation. And this is a massive part of pastoral ministry. But Paul says this to Timothy. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So you see that there are four pieces to this. That the word of God goes to Paul. Paul tells it to Timothy. Timothy tells it to other men who entrust it to other people. So it's just this baton that's handed on and on and on so that the truth of Christ keeps getting passed down through the discipleship process. So again, you might not be able to take the gospel to the jungle, and maybe God has not called you to that, and that is fine. But discipleship has to be an essential part of the fabric of our church. That this is a non-negotiable, that Christ has called us to be disciple makers. And to not obey this command is to disobey God. Are you disobeying God? Our purpose is to make disciples. Some of you may have thought to yourself, you know, 
I don't really know where I fit in at this church. I don't really know what my role to play is at Windsor Christian Fellowship. Maybe you feel like there's not enough formalized ministries to get involved with. I don't know. But what's important for you to see is that ministry should not have to be programmatic in order for you to get involved in ministry. But that it should be organic. If our responsibility is to, be, to make disciples, and if we take that seriously, then what should be the norm in, our, in the context of our church? It should be, hey, let, let's get together over God's word. Hey, we, we work close together. Let's have lunch once a week, once a month, and we'll engage over God's word, and we'll pray together, and we'll talk about how God is working. If your purpose is to make disciples, then, then jump in in that kind of a way. Break a few walls. It may feel a little awkward at first, but you jump in to get to know other people, to get to know burdens, to share the word together, to make disciples of one another. The second piece we see of the sacred command to disciple is the instruction to baptize and to teach. Look again at verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so you go... And you make disciples, and part of that, and we we all love to watch baptisms, don't we? But part of making disciples is seeing people baptized. So if you have trusted in Christ and you haven't been baptized, then this is a huge part of your discipleship that is missing. Baptism is an integral part of being a disciple of Jesus. It identifies us with the Trinitarian God, and it identifies us as well with the people of God. There's some of you who need to be baptized. You want to be a disciple of Christ? You want to grow in Christ? Then be scripturally baptized in the name of our Trinitarian God. Believer's baptism by immersion into the water. Being a follower of Jesus necessitates being baptized. This is part of how disciples of Christ are made in baptism. This is a first basic step. But as disciple makers, we're not only called to baptize new disciples but we're to teach them as well. I remember when I was a, a teenager, I remember this conversation pretty clearly, and I wasn't a very nice teenager most of the time, nor did I really think things through very carefully. But I was talking to a guy about the Great Commission, and he was really hardcore in the Great Commission, and I was, and I was probably kicking back against that a little bit. And I said, you think that the Great Commission... There's few words that Jesus gave to disciples on the side of a mountain. You really think that's for us? Like, we're supposed to obey them? What a cocky little teenager Brandon was. Anyway. But the thing is, he knew the context of the verses, and I didn't. And so he gave me a zinger. Since he knew the context, he said, yes, the command is for you, because Jesus goes on to say, to teach them all that I have commanded you. So if the Great Commission is a command, they're to teach you all of the commands of Jesus, therefore, we are to obey the Great Commission. It's very simple. Brandon didn't like it back then when he was about 16, 17, but I like it now, and I get to preach it now. Because this command is certainly for us to to obey. It was given to all of the disciples at first, but then they were to teach other people the command of the Great Commission that Jesus had told them. So it all follows that we must obey the Great Commission. We must baptize new disciples. We must teach them to observe all that Christ has said. 
Sometimes we get the idea, like in different churches, like, man, there's just too much teaching that goes on in this church. And we don't do enough going. We need to have more teaching. But discipleship requires teaching, a lot of teaching, right? Teaching that encompasses all of the commands of Christ, the entire word of God. This is a pretty big book, and it takes a really long time to teach through all of it. The expectation is that we are teaching and teaching and teaching. And the only way to grow further and more in depth as disciples of Jesus is if we are learning from the word of God. This is why we emphasize teaching here so much of this church. With preaching and Sunday school and kids Sunday school, ladies Bible study, community groups and on and on. Because teaching is fundamental to our growth as a disciple. The third point under the sacred command that I want you to see is the scope of the commission. Christ says to go and to make disciples. But first, what is the scope? To what extent do we go? We go to all nations. And where Jesus gave this command thousands of miles away from where we are right now. Are we not thankful that it has come to the nations? That as things have expanded and grown, that we can look at this text and say, man, that happened so far away. And here we are as believers trusting in this same word. If I were one of the disciples standing on the mountain with Jesus listening to these final words, I think that I would be shocked to hear that the scope is to go to all of the nations. Why? Because for thousands of years, Jesus had worked with the Jews, right? He had worked almost explicitly with them. There were glimmers here and there that that he was saving others, but specifically with the Jewish nation. But if we do look at our Old Testament, we do see that there is a heart for the nations. You go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis with Abraham. And what does he say to Abraham? In you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God had always intended on blessing all of the families of the earth with the presence of the gospel. And here Christ is now commissioning these men to go to all of the families of the earth, to all nations. You see beautiful glimmers in the Old Testament where where Rahab the harlot comes into God's family. You see where uh, Jonah goes to Nineveh and all those many people repent. The scope of the commission that Jesus gives here is as wide as the heart of God for people, all the nations. And there may be some of you whom God is calling to another part of the world. How wonderful would that be for God to call several of us and raise us up and we can back you as a church and you go and you give the gospel to the nations. Have you ever considered that? Has that even dawned on you to sell everything that you have, to move to another country and to then pour yourself into that country or in that place for the sake of the kingdom of God? Or have you ever considered short-term missionary work where you could go and you could use your skills and your talents and your money to be a blessing to a church in Eastern Europe or Africa or Asia, wherever you have an interest? For whatever reasons, long-term missions and short-term missions may not work for you, and that's fine because there's a lot of work to do with 1.2 million Mainers who do not know Jesus. We live on a mission field in Maine with over a million people here in this state who don't know him. And maybe we need to do a better job of drilling it into our minds that we need to start living here and now like a William Carey or an Amy Carmichael or a David Livingstone. Those great missionaries of old who consciously went far away from home without the prospect of even ever getting back home so that they could give the gospel. 
But I think the problem is that so many of us grew up on a mission field like New England, and we are hardened to the reality that so many people around us are perishing. How many of us are willing to submit simply to the will of Christ in terms of telling our friends and families and acquaintances about Him? The mission, almost any church you go into, their mission statement is to know Christ and to make Him known. Right? Just about every ministry, just about every church, to know Christ and to make Him known. And we know Christ, but what are we doing to make Him known? Why are we so fearful of telling people the truth? We're afraid of, of making a relationship awkward if we tell somebody about Jesus. Afraid that somebody might not like us because we tell them about Jesus or looking like one of those crazy born-again people. And we forget that the time is short. Jesus is going to return. We don't know when that is going to be, but we need to redeem the time. We need to be out harvesting in the fields while they are still ripe, before they get eternally burned. And where is our intensity to share this news? We don't get the option of saying that we don't have time. If Jesus stood before us this morning, he said, Brandon, shut up and sit down. Let me talk. And he gave us the verses And he said, go, make disciples, baptize them, teach them, I'll be with you. Would there be any of us, if he stood here and said that, would there be any of us who would walk out of here and not do that? The thing is, the word of God is just as equal to if Jesus were standing here and he said that. To read these verses as a command from our Lord, is the same as though He were standing here and gave them to us Himself. And Jesus has said, go. And by the way we live, we say, no. Brothers and sisters, I urge you, get on your knees before God and pray for grace and wisdom to share the good news of the gospel with your friends and your neighbors and your family, regardless of what you think the outcome would be. Who cares about awkwardness when eternal fire is at stake, right? Does it really matter? Who cares if they don't really like you for a few months when eternal hell is at stake? And and, and not not even just that, not, not the matter of fire insurance. I have fire insurance, so I said a prayer. No, it's not about that. It's about having that relationship in life. And the being able to say, they get to rejoice and to worship God for all of eternity. That's the point. Who cares about awkwardness when you get eternity with God? God loves to breathe life into dead bones. And He loves to cause people to come alive. And who knows whether or not, through you and your obedience, that He will bring about His Spirit onto somebody and cause them to come alive and to become a disciple. What a blessing that would be. But finally, what we have to remember is that while we are going to be making disciples, we baptize them and we teach them under the authority of Christ, we have to remember the final promise that Christ gives us in the second part of verse 20. He says, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What is your comfort in the Great Commission? The sustaining presence of Jesus. What calms your nerves when you're giving the gospel to somebody and, and, and they're a little hostile? The sustaining presence of Jesus. What must fill our fellow Christians in the world when they are being tortured because of their faith? The sustaining presence of Jesus. I told a few people this last night, but 
there was a, a, an event on Friday night that I went to that I had sent an email out about and uh, called Secret Church. And basically it's a six-hour teaching block where this guy, he just runs and runs and runs with teaching, 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 teaching. But they had a break where they would, uh, we would pray for the persecuted church. And specifically, it was the persecuted church in Iran. And so what they did is they ran a few um, testimonies of people in Iran. And then, uh, then we prayed and prayed specifically for different things about the gospel progressing in Iran. And there was this one lady who uh, 14 years ago, I guess it was, she had met a man and they uh, had struck up a relationship. The man knew that she was a Christian and I guess had apparently played that he was a Christian as well. The moment they got married, he was basically like, nope, we're not doing the Christian thing. They ended up, she ended up getting pregnant, ending up having a child. And what the guy did is he handed her a bill of divorce and divorced her and the courts gave the child to the man. And so there she was, a Christian woman, divorced from her husband and unable to be with her child. She stood before the court in Iran, and it was like the final court. Basically, we're not going to talk about this anymore um, beyond this court appearance. And so she stands before them, and they said, Tell us that you do not believe in Jesus. Tell us you are not a Christian, and you can have your kid back. And she said, I can't say that. I am a Christian. Talk about a disciple. Talk about somebody who wants to love and please and honor Jesus more than have her baby back. It's incredible that these are the kinds of things that are going on in the world. And what would have benefited that woman in that moment as she's standing before that judge? I am with you always. I think the best example that I can give to point you to what it looks like to be a disciple maker is in the book of Acts. Paul, he gets saved in chapter 9. He ends up preaching the gospel all over Asia and places in Europe. And and it's just the gospel is going crazy in Asia Minor, that area. He sets up shop in Ephesus, teaching his disciples, who then go out and make more disciples. So much so that in Acts chapter 19, it says, This continued for two years, so that all of the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. That's incredible. All the residents in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, had heard the word of the Lord. You talk about urgency. You talk about living on mission. And who would have been with them through that and enabling all of that? It would have been Jesus. One of the names of Christ that we usually hear uh, at Christmas time is Emmanuel, God with us, right? Because he came and he dwelt among men. But what Jesus is saying to his apostles here is that he is always Emmanuel. He is always with us. He's about to ascend in his body into heaven to be with his father, but he was still going to be with him. So in a sense, the book of Matthew begins and it ends in the same way with the presence of Christ. In the beginning, he is born on the scene. There is awe and wonder. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And now at the end, because of his submission and obedience to the Father, because of all that he attained, he can promise that his presence is still with us, that this presence has not left, but that he remains. It begins and the ends the same. I am with you. And he had to be. And we need this assurance that he is with us. Jesus knew that it wasn't going to be easy for the apostles. He says as much in Luke 10 verse 3. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. 
Jesus knew that there were going to be suffering. He knew that there were going to be beatings and shipwrecks. He knew that there were going to be hangings and crucifixions for his disciples. But he wanted them to know that he would be with them. And he wanted his apostles to be assured of both of those facts. That they were being sent out as lambs in the midst of wolves. But I am going to be with you even though that's the case. What a thing for the apostles to remember when the trials would come and the testing would come and the suffering would come, when the time of martyrdom would come. It's believed that all of the apostles but one were martyred for believing and preaching Christ. But don't mistake their being martyred by man for being deserted by Jesus. Jesus didn't abandon his apostles when they were being persecuted or martyred. Jesus said, he told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The apostles took up their cross. They followed after Jesus. And they lost their life for the sake of the Christ and for the sake of the gospel. The reward will be great and the sacrifice would be costly for being a disciple maker. But he is so worthy Jesus is worthy of it. And he is with us. You go to the darkest pit of Africa. I am with you. You go knock on your neighbor's door tomorrow. I am with you. You sit down with your, un, your, your unsaved children. I am with you. You take your coworker out to dinner. I am with you. Jesus is always with his disciples, reminding you that he is sovereign, reminding you of his command, and reminding you of his sustaining promise in his presence. Go and make disciples. One of my favorite things about the Great Commission is that there is no chance involved. There's no, there's no chance involved. Bethany will tell you that I do not like to play board games or any games really that involve chance. Because I want to be able to influence the outcome and I want to win. I don't want to fail or to lose. I don't want to fail or lose because the dice didn't go my way. But there is no rolling of the dice with the Great Commission. This commission will not fail. From this commission, we've seen the the sovereign authority that's behind us and backing us. And that his sustaining presence is always with us. And we cannot fail if we give ourselves to this thing. Jesus also says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And so once the gospel goes forth to all of the nations, the end will come, but not until then. Again, we cannot fail. Christ has ensured the gospel will be preached throughout the nations before his return. And someday we will be with the sovereign God who has always been with us. And we will be with those from every nation celebrating as it stated in Revelation 7. And behold a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God. God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so the outcome is sure. The Great Commission will be carried to the nations. Disciples will be made of all nations. There's never been anything more sure that you could give yourself to. The Great Commission will be accomplished and one day we will glory in Him with the nations and we will praise Him with disciples that He has helped us to make. Are you obeying the Great Commission? If God has not called you elsewhere, it's because He wants you. 
He wants you to be discipling the 1.2 million Mainers who are here. Will you reach them? Will you pray for them? Will you go to them under the sovereign authority of Jesus in obedience to his command, upheld by his sustaining presence? Let's pray. Lord, help us to do this. I pray that you'll give us a real sense as a result of looking at your word and confidence in your authority. Lord, I pray that you'll also enable us to obey. Lord, we pray that you'll strategically bring those across our path who are in need of the gospel. To put us in situations where we can simply turn and and speak of the most beautiful thing in our lives, this, this gospel. Do this, Lord. And also, Lord, we are thankful for your sustaining presence, even now, sustaining us. And as we go, when we spread this news, sustain us then, and help us to be conscious of your presence with us. We pray this in his name. Amen.